This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a significant funding source for New Orleans public schools may be drying up soon as city council suggests they may want to shift that funding to other areas. And COVID cases in schools continue to drop. And The Lens has discovered the district attorney's office has quietly adopted a policy of refusing to prosecute most low-level drug offenses. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Kelly. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado is joining. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up in education, after the city signed a new lease with Harris Hotel in 2020, a special Harris Fund no longer explicitly names NOLA Public Schools as the recipient of certain funds. District officials say the $3 million is critical for certain services, but the council may have other ideas for its use. What was the district asking for at the city council's meeting this week? Yeah, so the district, I think, thought what they were making was a rather routine request. Um, They were asking for $1.5 million to be split between three different programs, two specialized programs, and and a third, which is the school at the jail. And it it turns out the conversation wasn't so simple. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a terribly long time that they've had this funding. And as you said, it seemed like it was routine and then suddenly it's not. That's got to be really disruptive for them. Yeah, I, I think it came as a, well, maybe not a total surprise to them because this money should have been uh, given out, you know, sooner and not, not, we shouldn't have waited until now to be having this discussion. But so maybe they had some anticipation that there was going to be more discussion here. But uh, certainly for them to lose this one and a half million and, and what is normally, you know, up to three million in better economic years, I think was a very big surprise or is potentially going to be a big surprise. Right. Yeah, yeah. And just, uh, just a little background on this. So this is this is money that payments that are guaranteed by Harris Casino um, as a result of its you know long term exclusive lease to operate a casino um, in the CBD in, in New Orleans. Previously under the lease deal, I believe there was money specifically earmarked for Orleans Parish for the Orleans Parish School Board, uh, but when they signed a new lease last year. Uh, uh, those terms were loosened somewhat, I believe, and and just tagged to go to education in general. Okay, so right, it it used to explicitly say NOLA public schools. Now they're saying that they they're maybe redirecting towards early childhood education. Give us some detail, a little bit more about which which places are are at risk of losing funding and what happens to them. Sure. So the places that they uh, the district is trying to supplement um, is one Travis Hill School. That's a school at the jail. Second is the Center for Resilience, which is a, a very small program that is targeted toward students who are having you know emotional or behavioral issues in school and really can't function in a normal environment. Um, so they're brought out to this much smaller program and um, until that they until such time that they you know feel better and more comfortable that they can go back to their normal school and most of those kids do go back to their normal school. So 
you know, this is really, you can tell is a transitional program that is important for kids. And then the third is the district's office of uh, student support, which is houses social workers and uh, tracks students who are having trouble with attendance and uh, tries to get them back in school. What do they do now if they're, if they're funding, if this funding dries up, I can't, it's probably not all their funding, but what do they do? How do they operate? No, certainly the district would have, needs to continue funding Travis Hill, right? That is a school within the district that the way I see it, I don't know if this is 100% correct, but you know, the, the district has to provide an educational opportunity to students in the city. So I think they have to keep funding the school at the jail. Um, those other programs I think might take more of a hit uh, in terms of services being offered. Um, you know, the Center for Resilience is a nonprofit, so it's possible that they could have a contract issue with the with the district. Um, and I think really what you're seeing here is Superintendent Henderson Lewis said, you know, we need this money to provide these critical services to our students. This is something we've been doing since 2004. Um, and I actually had a former administrator text me yesterday and say, actually, that, you know, the Harris money goes back even farther. But what Lewis was saying is that these three programs, um, they're so specialized that, you know, really to run a school um, officially, you need a certain number, a minimum amount of students, right, to have a healthy budget. Yep. And these are the types of programs that when you don't have a certain number of students, you know, it's going to cost a lot more to run these types of programs. So that's, I think, why they direct the money here. Um, but the other thing you're seeing here is, you know, if you think about back in 2004, Orleans was a pretty traditional district, right? The school board was in charge of most money and in charge of most schools and in charge of most services. Now the district is, um, only operates one school directly. Well, we're basically an all-charter system. And so money flows in many different ways, though the district is still responsible for some of these, uh, you know, more centralized or stopgap or wraparound services, they've kind of um, come to fill in those gaps. Okay. So this is really the result of a changing uh, system. And, I, you know, hopefully we can continue to fund these programs. Marta, I have a question for you. This, this money, the city council is talking about rerouting this money to early childhood education programs, and those would be early childhood education programs, presumably, that are outside of the NOLA public schools control. Now, I think the background on that, this is, you know, we're talking about this current grant round is $1.5 million. I think the background on that is, um, this is money that the council is thinking about replacing that would have gone to early childhood education had the the library millage proposal last year passed. The December vote that um, Mayor Latoya Cantrell proposed to taking about 40% of the library's tax budget and rerouting it to other priorities, including a pretty small slice to, to early childhood education. Now, would there be options for the district to offer to the council uh, to fund certain, perhaps, district-run early childhood programs? Is that something that, that, that would be a possibility? Yeah, so the district does have certain money that they could use to expand programming in that, that direction, but the, the large bulk of the district's money is you know state and federal money that is coming for specifically K through 12 seats. Mm -hmm. so it, it is complicated in that way that you know a lot of their money is earmarked specifically for you know elementary middle and high school education and not early childhood education i'm just i'm just wondering if it would be if it would be at, at all possible and maybe this is too difficult to answer uh, for the district to propose to the council that this money would fund certain 
early childhood programs that, that it may run, and, and then it could use money within its own budget to supplement these programs that it would have otherwise funded with Harris money. I, I think they certainly have room in the budget to fund some of this, uh, but, but there is not. There were early childhood presenters at this meeting too, and they, they said, you know, like more than 120 million would be needed to provide high quality education to all the right. um, children in the city. And this is 3 million, so it's, or 1.5 million. So it's not, you know, it's not coming anywhere close to filling that need. But um, we do have pre-K four programs here that some schools do run. Mm-hmm. Um, they're funded at a significantly lower level than kindergarten through 12th grade seats. Mm-hmm. Um, they only receive a few thousand dollars a year, whereas uh, typical students receiving eight, nine, ten thousand dollars for every student. This begs the question: You said that early childhood education um, is needs a, a a bucket of money of 120 million. Is that what you said? That's what these presenters said. For for every student under five to receive a high quality early childhood education would be 120 million or so okay. a year. Okay, and this this fund this funding is. Th- 1.5 that's going to be diverted perhaps from these other three programs compared to the 120 needed according to the experts then what's the reasoning why the pivot um, I think there's a need for high, you know early childhood education uh, seats in this city absolutely and I, I think um, the council's been thinking about that for a long time they've been devo- devoting resources other resources to it um, at one point, they were asking the school board to match them. That was in 2018. That didn't end up happening. Um, you know, I think I think they just see early childhood um, as a need as well. So um, there were also people who were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, we, we need to be investing in kids early here, not later on when there's problems. Maybe we can prevent, you know, some of these issues or trauma or, you know, whatever might be happening in a child's life if we invest on the front end. So... I think it's just, it's more about what the council wants. Okay. Yeah, and it, well, and I would also say, I mean, if 120 is the, is the is really the need, they're not going to be able to generate that locally. We would have to have much more state and federal involvement to get that kind of money flowing into early childhood education. Right. Right. It would, it would be $65 million for the most basic education and 120 plus for, you know, high quality, high quality centers and highly trained staff. Okay. Did they suggest any other uses? Um, not really. Early childhood is mostly what they were talking about, and I think that would be likely to come in the form of grants for families, right? So subsidized childcare, I think, is what we would see. But they punted on the overall decision, so Superintendent Henderson Lewis has to come back with... Yep, they asked him to come back so that he could, um, you know, give a specific presentation to, as to how they would use the money for the three programs they want to use the money for. And he really didn't get into details on Tuesday, so I'm not sure if he just wasn't ready for that or because this had been routine in the past hadn't you know necessarily been thinking about it or didn't think he needed to defend his program so Hmm. so we shall see at the next full council meeting okay and give us an update on COVID-19 cases in schools they seem to be going down again or still yeah so we actually have good news this is the lowest case count and the lowest um, number of campuses that have cases since obviously not the beginning but for, for a very significant amount of time we had six cases at three schools, so those are those are good, uh, much better numbers to see. Surprising. That's good news. Um, again, you know, we got to keep an eye out what's happening in the coming weeks. You know, we don't know how much of this is still uh, is still left over from students being on break, but you know, 
it is looking pretty good. Um, you know, the situation in the city as a whole is still looking pretty good. Um, even, uh, you know, as we reported this week, we had a little bit of a setback with Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Right, but the trends in the schools still seem to be really good. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Nick? You uncovered some big news this week. The Orleans Parish DA's office says it's adopting a policy of refusing all charges for possession of small amounts of drugs they define as an amount that is intended only for personal use with the exception of heroin and fentanyl. How did you come upon this information? Yeah, so I uh, submitted a public records request for all the policies that that the new DA who took office in in January had had implemented since since then um, and you know a number a number of the policies that, that I came across from this public records request he had announced um, and and were kind of public knowledge already but this one um, was not so so yeah as, as you said um, we learned that the office was refusing all all drug charges with the except all, all uh, low level drug charges with the exception of heroin and fentanyl. Um, you know, one interesting thing about about how this policy was sort of uh, presented in the in the emails that I got from the book re- records request was it wasn't as as many of the policies were sent out. You know, staff wide, there were a number of emails that that kind of delineated some various policy changes. Right when uh, DA Williams took office. This was actually, I found this out because an assistant district attorney, sort of a, a lower level attorney in the office, emailed their supervisor saying, I just want to clarify, I'm getting a lot of questions. Um, we should be refusing all low level drug charges. Is that right? And then, and then what she said was, I'm not, I'm not comfortable refusing heroin and fentanyl unless it's residue. And the first assistant, Bob White, who's, who's kind of making these policy decisions, said, said yes, that, that's correct for now. Um, so that was, that was really the only uh, reference to this policy that, that came from this public records request. But, you know, it, it was enough to suggest what they were doing. And, and then I took it to the DA's office, who, who confirmed that, that that was, in fact, a policy currently. I think what this comes from and the reason that the uh, ADA in the screening division was asking about this um, is because on the campaign trail, Jason Williams had, had talked a lot about reducing low-level drug arrests or drug charges. Um, he'd only really specifically mentioned marijuana, though, from what I remember. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. So, so these other drugs are a bit, uh, are, are, were previously unannounced. Um, I, guess, I guess I'd like to ask, um, you know, I... I know some people, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen on social media at least some people 
we're at least we're a little disappointed that this is not all low-level drug arrests. So when you talk to the DA's office, what's their reasoning for for excluding heroin and fentanyl? Yeah, so their their reasoning is that that these are the drugs that are contributing most to to overdose deaths um, in the city, which which in fact is is true. Uh, fentanyl, I think, has been the been the cause of two thirds of the of overdose deaths uh, in in twenty twenty in Louisiana. I mean, in, in New Orleans specifically. Um, know that I kind of reported that. So that's their reasoning. You know, they did not say specifically how prosecuting those cases was going to mitigate overdose deaths. Um, so it's unclear to me necessary, you know, whether or not they feel like prosecuting these cases can be used as a way to investigate kind of the uh, supply chain of drugs or whether or not they mm. think that they can, you know, get these individuals into treatment programs or whether or not they think that they, you know, that jail time will be is, is necessary in these cases. Those things were not entirely clear to me, but but yeah. So that was the that was the reasoning that they gave, and yeah. I, I mean, I saw I saw the same uh, sort of disappointment on on social media that you did, Charles, and and people were arguing. You know, what's the difference between if someone has a, an illegally obtained prescription uh, opioid versus something that they get from the black market, and and are these distinctions, you know, maybe maybe. Um, Causing some uh, discriminatory effects in terms of who's being who's being charged with drug crimes and who's not. You know, are are wealthier people more likely to, to, to not be prosecuted than than poor people who, who are obtaining these drugs on the street? Which I right. think are, are fair fair points. Yeah, but like I said, that's the reason that, that the DA's office gave. You didn't get a firm answer from them. If if I'm if I'm not mistaken, uh, that. They didn't say like, well, we're not, we're, we're, we're going to continue charging these, but we plan on putting most of them into diversion programs or anything like that. They didn't, no, they did not say that. That would be what I guess I would expect given, given what they, the, the way they've talked about addiction and the way they've talked about, uh, uh, drug crimes in general, but, but no, there was no, no firm commitment or anything like this. What's the effect of a policy like this at the police department? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I wasn't able to um, get a hold. Uh, the NOPD was not um, available for comment or, de- or declined to comment, I should say. Um, the DA's apparently has, has articulated the policy to NOPD, so NOPD knows that if they're arresting people for you know small amounts of cocaine, uh, small amounts of, of pills or, or, or meth or things like that, then those people won't get prosecuted whether or not the NOPD is not is, is going to stop arresting those people uh, is unclear. We, we just don't know. But I think it's something to, to sort of keep an eye out and, you know, could end up being one way in which it, the new DA's policy sort of drive a wedge between, you know, could potentially drive a wedge between him and the police department. Um, so far, you know, there's been relatively little... Uh, tension um, between those two offices, but but you know if you if you look at how uh, things have gone for progressive prosecutors in in other um, cities and other counties yeah. across the country, that it's often the case. Okay, there's yeah. often been tension. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I guess the thing to watch out for 
over the over the next coming months is a will there be you know will there be a policy response from NOPD an official policy response to this and if not the thing to watch out for over the next few months is are low level drug arrests going down right yeah exactly right my i have a question about the data if there is any linking violent crime with drugs and you know larceny even i'm not up to date on, on all the most recent research on, on this, but certainly that is uh, a long uh, made argument that, that people who are in favor of enforcing um, lower level, certainly drug crimes and, you know, it's sort of the, the broken windows theory of policing that, that you enforce these, these little things um, and it ultimately prevents the, the more serious cases. I mean, I think that in New Orleans, you know, when we certainly had more punitive um, and more tough on crime prosecutors in the past. And Jason Williams really, really ran contrary to that. So we'll see what the effects are of these policies, but I think they, sh- they certainly shouldn't be, you know, a surprise to, to anyone. And I don't know enough about the research on this either, but, but I would say I think the argument on the other side is the continued criminalization of drugs keeps them more dangerous, keeps them more expensive, and keeps more people addicted to them, you know, treating it as a criminal problem rather than as a public health problem. Right. In your story, Nick, I want to find it. You you talk about, and you mentioned it just for, a, you mentioned it a second ago. So fentanyl trafficking, driving a spike in opioid overdoses, a rising number have absolutely created a public health crisis. This office has to use everything within our means to mitigate the damage from the drug on our community. These cases deserve serious intervention. Talk a little bit more about what what does that look like? Serious intervention. This office is in charge of doing some of that. How do they propose that? Well, like I, like I said, I'm not sure yet. Um, I think the the two sort of ways I I read serious intervention is one sort of attempting to get to get uh, these people into treatment. Um, and then two is is using prosecution or the threat of prosecution as a way to investigate uh, the source of these drugs. So uh, I, I think that that is what uh, the first assistant, uh, Bob White, is suggesting when he says, you know, fentanyl trafficking from the eastern and western seaboards have been driving a spike. Um, I think I think the idea would be to kind of investigate the source of this trafficking and um, and maybe you know try and try and bring larger drug cases and, and kind of target the suppliers of, of, of these drugs in, in New Orleans. This is kind of utilizing some of the prosecutor's tools. When, when Miyake Nazaro was DA, he sort of coordinated this effort to, to map opioid overdoses throughout the city. Um, and that was sort of, sort of a collaboration between all the first, re- first responders. So, you know, the uh, medical services and then, and then the fire department, but then, his office was also going to be using that data to to you know criminally investigate these cases, and this was something that that Jason Williams, when he was on the city council, you know he never agreed with, with the DA on anything, but but in this particular instance, he was in support of this uh, uh, tool. So so you know he he's, he's he's not historically opposed to to using the tools of the DA's office to sort of try and target drugs in some fashion, even if it's not going after sort of low-level stuff. 
Yeah, I would think it would remove, uh, based on what I know from popular culture, uh, police procedural television shows, if you don't have the tool to be able to use the low level crime and say, you know, we're not really after you, we're after the person that you got it from and then the person above that and the person above that, it seems like you, you, you may not have that tool anymore that can lead to the head of the snake, if you will. It, it's kind yeah, of a I, facile way to describe it. No, I wouldn't be surprised if, if something like that is part, is part of their thinking here um, in you know, remaining open to, to prosecuting these cases. Huh, it's interesting. Based on other uh, cities that have similar progressive policies, what's the long-term effect? Have there been any, do you know? I mean, it's kind of unfair to ask you this. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think we know know exactly yet. Um, I, you know, Portland just uh, recently, um, you know, le- legalized all, all drugs in, in their jurisdiction. And I right. think we're still kind of waiting to see the full effects of that. You know, that's pretty significantly different than um, what we're seeing here, which is just a, an office that's, that's declining to prosecute. But, you know, I will say that this is like a good example of why uh, criminal justice reform advocates have have focused so strongly on on DA's offices in the last, you know, um, several years is is that they can really quietly, you know, or loudly, depending on how they want to do it, Mm -hmm. put into place these pretty big changes that, you know, you would sort of ordinarily think of as needing to be legislated. So he's basically deciding that it's no longer a crime to be carrying small amounts of small amounts of drugs, and he can do that independently of the city council, independently of the state legislature, um, which is a pretty remarkable um, amount of discretion for one actor in the, in the justice system. Yeah, the fact that it was quiet and that you uncovered it is interesting to me. Um, I'm and I'm wondering what kind of pushback there will be, or or feedback or response to the revelation, if you will, of of this policy. It's interesting. Yeah, I think it, I think it will be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, keeping in mind that he ran on a progressive platform, so as you said, Nick, it can't be that much of a surprise that this kind of policy would emanate from his office. Nick, great job uncovering that. It's a pretty big story. Thanks, Have a great week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.